0: This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com. Fun fact Bacon can extend your life. Fun fact Butter in your morning coffee can prevent heart attacks. Fun fact Popcorn is more nutritious than any other fruit or vegetable. I got all these from Facebook. They have all been articles that have appeared on my wall, many of them multiple times, many of them shared by friends and commented on by their friends saying, Oh, thank God, isn't that wonderful? Great. Gonna go have some now. You ever wonder how much truth there is to those and other stories about nutrition that seem counterintuitive, too good to be true? Well, today's guest Michaela Carlson helps us unpack how this happens, why it happens, and most importantly, what we can do to prevent being victims of nutritional ignorance. Before I talk about her, I just want to share a quick to-do that I'm going to ask all of you to do um, after listening to this episode, which is to take a survey that Michaela has put together as part of a team uh, with Tufts University, where she is a doctoral student in nutritional epidemiology. The survey is really important because we need to get a large number of plant-based eaters. And we we'll talk about that during the interview, why it's so important. But basically, if plant-based eaters don't participate in nutritional research, then nutritional research can't prove that plant-based eating is any better than any other kind of eating. So if, if you'd like to advocate for either plant-based lifestyles or a vegan lifestyle or simply scientific accuracy and completeness and truth, then please go complete the survey. If you want to go find the link on the podcast page, it's at plantyourself.com. And at the top right, just search for Michaela, which is like Michael without an H, but an extra A at the end, M-I-C-A-E-L-A. Or you can memorize this link right now. If you're driving somewhere and you don't think you'll get back to it, it's j.mp, like jump with a dot instead of the U forward slash adapt survey, all one word. So let's go back to the show. So Michaela Carlson is a lot more optimistic about the future of nutritional science than I usually am, and you'll, you'll hear it in our conversations. <laughs> maybe it's genetic and she's just a more upbeat person in general, or maybe, and this is what I really hope, is her decade of experience in the belly of the beast in the world of nutritional research, policy and public discourse leads her to see a brighter future for our increasing understanding of how to eat. So she jumped into the fray as the second executive director of the T. Colin Campbell Foundation, which is now the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies, and has continued on the research advocacy path by simultaneously setting up and running a really valuable website, plantbasedresearch.org, which collects all known research on plant-based diets and health, Uh, a huge resource for people who are either unfamiliar with online scientific research or don't have access to all of the studies behind the paywalls of the various nutritional and health journals. At the same time, she is studying for her doctorate in nutritional epidemiology from Tufts University. And in her spare time, she writes about popcorn. To be slightly more accurate, Michaela wrote an article for nutritionstudies.org about a Gizmodo article whose headline read scientific proof that popcorn is healthier than fruit and vegetables and in her article she traced this hyperbolic simplified sensationalist and misleading claim back several steps to its source which was an account it was actually a press release account of a presentation given at the 243rd National Meeting and Exposition of the American Chemical Society, which discussed the relatively high concentration of a particular type of antioxidant called polyphenols in popcorn, especially in high concentrations in food in which most of the water is gone. And it was this article of Michaela's, which I somehow missed when it was first published, but it found its way onto my Facebook feed last month. And I was like, this is great stuff. And it reminded me that I wanted to talk with her and share her, her perspective and her perspicacity with the world. So with all that, and without further ado, Michaela Carlson, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Howie. It's great to be here.
0: Yes. Yeah, so let's let's talk about um, some history. Um, so you I first came across your name. and you were you're were the original kind of executive director of the T Colin Campbell Foundation, now known as uh, Colin Campbell Foundation for Nutrition Studies. Um, and I'd love to find out like how you got that job, what you were doing beforehand and like what led you to an interest in plant based nutrition?
1: Sure. I would love to um, share about that. So I would actually say that I was the second executive director. The first executive director was my best friend and um, kind of partner in crime, Megan Murphy, who was lucky enough um, to become acquainted with Dr. Campbell and ended up working for him at a time when he had just received a donation to get Um, the nonprofit started and really creates some materials that could be used for public education. So Megan and I both went to Cornell and um, she actually took his class. She was lucky enough to take his class there before it was canceled, um, vegetarian nutrition. And I was very interested in his work kind of in parallel to Megan. And Read the China study as soon as it came out. And um, just, it was, I was really fortunate to be in the right place at the right time that I was able to make a contribution. And so Megan and I were the first two employees. And we um, worked together to um, transform the materials from a previous online version of Dr. Campbell's course into the uh, materials that are now the certificate program in plant based nutrition, which. I believe the Center for Nutrition Studies is now updating again. So she and I worked together, and she actually unfortunately passed away um, when she was 30. And at that time, I was doing my master's degree in um, public health nutrition at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. And so I was still involved with the foundation and working part-time, but then um, made a transition to then come back and then step into the role of executive director, which I did. Until um, I then was on my way out, and uh, Dr. Campbell's son, now Dr. Tom Campbell, was on his way in to um, take over as the executive director. Wow! So,
0: so I want to come back to your your tenure at at the foundation. But what what got you interested in nutrition in the first place? Was it just your your friendship with Megan? Was she driving it, or did you have sort of childhood um, curiosity? Yeah, no.
1: I think I was I think I had some innate interest in really um eating a healthy diet and being my best for a long time, and I stopped eating meat sometime during my teens. I think I was like seventeen, and I had a lot of allergies and I always had issues with my weight. I definitely had health problems that I wasn't really able to fix until I was eating a totally plant-based diet. so I remember in high school I just could never breathe through my nose it was kind of in some ways I felt like I was handicapped because I I had I was always breathing through my mouth it was so uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. um I had trouble sleeping because of that to some extent um and then I I stopped eating meat because I didn't really I think I didn't like it a lot but I also just had this feeling that it was better for me and so that first decision wasn't really based on evidence but then as I became more involved with eating this way and, um, developed the, you know, the healthier principles of the way that I eat more deeply. And certainly when I, when I started working for Dr. Campbell, that was when I, um, became acquainted with the idea that oil is a processed food too, just like sugar. And that was kind of difficult to stomach for a while, but I did make the transition to cooking in my own home without oil and, really eating a whole food, plant-based diet, not just a vegan diet. Um, so I think it evolved very gradually for me, but with a consistent direction for about maybe 10 to 12 years. And I've eaten the way I eat now um, probably since I started working for Dr. Campbell. So that was at this point maybe seven or eight years ago. I'm starting to lose track of time.
0: <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's funny about oil. It's, it's, it's such a blind spot for people that oil is, yeah. is a processed food.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think um, that it's maybe, you know, there's a lot of evidence coming to light now that people are kind of excited about in the research world, that the amount of oil doesn't matter so much, but the type of oil matters more. And I feel like those kinds of discussions are sort of contained by range of total fat intake that's really studied. So most of those studies are um, based on uh, interventions and observational studies where people are eating somewhat of a higher fat diet, usually over 30% fat. Um, So that's like a discussion that I think is very controversial in the mainstream research world. And I think that um, although there's a lot of consensus among the whole food plant-based World, but that's it's a very clear um, parallel between oil and sugar. I think that's that's something that you know I look forward to seeing that conversation develop in the future among like the academics and the scientists.
0: Mm. So yeah, it's uh, there's a study that I came or yes, an opinion piece a research article that I came across from I think 2001 by Jeffrey Rose about sick individuals and sick populations. Mm -hmm. And and the idea was basically like if everybody in a population smoked cigarettes, then scientists Mm -hmm. would have to conclude that lung cancer is is random and genetic Mm -hmm. because there's no control group that doesn't do it. So the same same thing about oil, if everyone is taking in high fat, 40% fat diets, then the only thing that gets interesting is, well, monounsaturated versus polyunsaturated versus saturated, lauric acid and, you know, all that stuff, as opposed to the very, very few of us who are on the no oil end of the spectrum.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's kind of a crucial piece to remember when we're thinking about how to interpret research headlines in the news or if we're reading study ourselves how to place that information in context is to ask what was the overall diet like among this population and if you're making a comparison between two groups um, what's the standard that you're using and does this um, is this parallel at all to a whole food plant-based diet or how if, you know, if that's what you're interested in, which that's what you and I are interested in, how does this diet compare and how do the results compare with what you would find with a whole food plant-based diet? And often the macronutrient composition of the studies that are used to make these comparisons or make recommendations is overall very different than the very low fat, low protein, high unrefined carbohydrate profile that you get from a whole food plant-based diet.
0: So we'll we'll get into kind of the the you know reading the research. That's that's something that an interest that you and I share about educating people to defend themselves against Mm -hmm. really bad nutritional research. Um, Mm -hmm. But first, sort of what, what did you what did you learn from from working with Dr. Campbell from you know creating the foundation? And I'm wondering if you also interacted with the public in ways that surprised you?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I feel so fortunate to have worked for Dr. Campbell for so many years. I really consider him a mentor, and not just a mentor in terms of my inspiration around nutrition, but also a mentor in terms of how I think about nutrition. I think that really, I think he's one of the greatest minds of our generation. I think he's such a renaissance thinker, and he really is, like, he's really transcended the the boundaries that so many scientists um, are constrained by because of the narrow focus of their own work. And he's really been able to take a step back and look at the big picture of how nutrition and, you know, his book whole really goes into this a lot, the way that uh, nutrients interact and how important that is compared to just the additive effects of this nutrient or this food plus this food. So um, I feel like I've, gained a, a perspective of um, always wanting to keep the big picture in mind when interpreting individual results and always um, really striving for the truth and not being afraid of what the results will be. And I know that um, Dr. Campbell has said and been quoted many times as saying that the closer we get to a whole food plant-based diet, the better. But we don't yet have the evidence that it's necessary 100% for 100% of us to be totally plant-based. And um, I think that's a really interesting question of when is it important that in terms of just health outcomes leaving aside that there are also environmental reasons and ethical reasons that you might choose that lifestyle. But um, I think that a lot of these questions about the more refined differences or the more subtle differences between different types of plant-based diets or different approaches have really yet to be explored. So I I feel like what I was able to learn from him was both inspiration around doing research and conducting research, and I think like working for him and seeing the kind of impact he's been able to make as a scientist is what certainly influenced me in taking the direction that I've taken. So I'm now a PhD student at Tufts in their Nutrition Friedman School of Nutrition, which is um, just a wonderful place. Like I love it there. People are there's so much going on and. And um, so much activity and interest. And there's also a lot of focus on sustainability, which I really much appreciate. Um, but I feel like I've been able to take a perspective that um, kind of is courageous because um, I don't know what all the results will be from the work that I do or what others do, but I'm not afraid of that. I really want to let my views be shaped by the data that we get.
0: Well, that, that's a minority uh, approach.
1: Well, I mean, I'm doing the best I can. You know, like for Dr. Campbell, I think it was maybe easier for him to have that perspective or maybe harder in some ways. I mean, he did come from a dairy farm, but at the same time, he didn't know that his data might take him in this completely different direction, whereas I'm aware that I do come in with a bias, and that's why um, it's so important to create really robust research studies that will enable you to like trust the results, even if the researcher had a bias. The stronger your design, the more you can trust the results. Wow. So, yeah, so that's that's kind of where I'm coming from.
0: I love hearing you say that because, you know, I've become really um, involved in critiques of, of terrible studies, you know the mm-hmm. like the the saturated fat meta analyses that have made the cover of Time magazine, telling us that butter mm-hmm. is fine, and you know and and, mm-hmm. and, and, and every link. And we'll talk about this because you have a great article on on you know the media saying that popcorn is healthier than fruit, uh, which I'd mm-hmm. love I'd love to talk about. But you know in in our in our zeal to debunk these studies. I think we miss the fact that a lot of our studies aren't <laughs> a whole lot more robust That you know the ones that that show that a, a plant-based diet is healthy they there's mm-hmm. a difference between pointing to the truth and being a a really well-designed airtight study and I think we leave ourselves open to, to to criticism of a of a huge double standard when we're running around bashing other people's studies and not acknowledging that our own have have flaws and shortcomings.
1: Yeah, and I think that one thing that I very much appreciate about um, scientists as a culture and as a group is that um, there's a lot of there's a great there's, there are a lot of expectations that you will constructively critique, bordering into criticizing any study that comes your way, but at the same time. I find them to be very non-defensive when there's a discussion around um, even just in a meeting when we're critiquing someone's PowerPoint to help make it better or to discuss how the data was analyzed. Maybe you should adjust for this. You forgot about How about this? I really feel like the culture that we're trained to express is very non-defensive. So that's a little different than... I mean, that's not always true. There are certainly um elements running through the scientific community where you know there's money involved or there's some kind of influence from a particular interest group and that does exist but um i think that that's maybe a difference in the popular media where um people are really coming from a certain perspective and um, I think her goal is to advance their own argument rather than necessarily look at what does the study tell us, how could it be better, and what are the limitations. I feel like maybe the conversation around the limitations of the study is taken more in a, criticizing, a direction of criticizing it and bashing it, as you're saying.
0: Right. The whole thing's become a, a debate, and the more I've invested my career in a particular outcome— the, the more mm-hmm. vociferously I will I will defend my data set regard regardless mm-hmm. of how defensive defensible it is
1: mm-hmm. definitely and um, I think that the you know what you you had asked another part of your question and I wanted to say something about that but I, can you repeat what you had just asked a little bit ago
0: um, well let's see I'm, I, know <laughs> I, I know I asked a... Everyone else who's listening to this is like remembering, but I'm not. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I'd, I think I'd asked you about like your dealings with the public as, oh, as, as the
1: Oh, yeah, that's but, right. Okay, so I mean, I think I, this is certainly, I'm not the first person to say this, but, the, but we all know the public is so confused because um, there are conflicts, it seems like, conflicting headlines about nutrition in the news all the time. And unfortunately, like this is partly due to the research that is being produced, because uh, I don't know if people like think about this, but almost every research institution, research university, or probably every pharmaceutical company that does research or any institution that's producing the information has a public relations office whose job it is to get the results of their research out into the media. So um, they do, I mean, certainly at where I am and most universities, I think they do try their best to make sure that the news release is very measured and accurate. But then once it gets out there, they really can't control what happens from that point forward. And Blogs and news articles are just reprinting things left and right, and then adding their own commentary. And things can really start to spiral out of control. And that's where I think the confusion is um, augmented more and more. Yeah. Well, you know,
0: I just posted a video of me, me tracing a, a Facebook post that I saw about bacon increasing longevity um, mm-hmm. to to the actual article, which was about um, c- chemicals. Chemical reactions and roundworms, um, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, so, so that's that's also very interesting to see, like where in the ga- you know, in the in the chain of the game of telephone, like mm-hmm. where where are the dirty hands? And it was actually the PR department of this research institution in Zurich that that posted the uh, the headline, you know, "Bacon the Fountain of Youth," when there was nothing in the study about mm-hmm. bacon. It was just like niacin and nematodes.
1: Yeah. Wow.
0: Um,
1: that's really interesting. So that's the kind of headline that depending on who the researchers are or where they are, that might be very upsetting for them to have that headline produced from their study, which really did not directly relate to bacon. On the other hand, I don't know them, so we don't really know. But I know that that conversation has come up more than once um, in when I've been present. And I think like many researchers are very concerned about that because that that's that's just such an exaggeration right. of what the study's really about.
0: Right. I have to I have to correct myself a little bit. I just pulled up the page. It says niacin is the fountain of youth and but mm-hmm. the, the lead researcher also says that there's no scientific evidence for the usefulness of antioxidants. Hmm. So <laughs> so I think I think there's some axe to grind right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so, yeah, so as as you were working with with Dr. Campbell, so he is, you know, a, an extremely measured scientist. Like when we were, when we were working on the manuscript for Hull, he would constantly come back with to, to me and say, "Well, this is a great sentence, but it's not entirely supported by the facts." And mm-hmm. you know, and I'm like, "Oh, it's a great sentence though." And so mm-hmm. yeah, like it's probably true. He's like, you know, well, we have to say it may, <laughs> or there's some evidence to show or yeah. partially and I was like, "Oh, dude, man, you know, this isn't as strong as it could be. But, you know, that was like he's all he was always willing to look at the other side whenever there was mm-hmm. some criticism, he's like, well, that's interesting. Show me that study. And yet yeah. on the other side, the people who are running around saying, well, his work is debunked, that he's a tool of PETA, you know, mm-hmm. I wonder what it was like for you to sort of be be in the middle of that and see, on the one hand, really responsible ethical science and to see a a sort of, you know, a money-driven or ideology-driven irresponsible response to it?
1: Um, well, I didn't, it didn't really bother me a lot because, um, I mean, I my interpretation of it was that, you know, he was saying things that certain people didn't like and the people who are most vocal about it tended to have time to, um, be very vocal and get their message out there, but I don't. I'm not aware that there are any actual scientists who ha- who would say things about that like him to the public. I mean, I think I know that there are certainly scientists who disagree with his conclusions and they would interpret the evidence in a different way, but I don't really think most of those sort of naysayers or people bashing the China study or saying that it's debunked. Like I really don't think that those people that I'm aware of have the same training and qualifications and in, in research that he does. So I it's hard for me to take a lot of those comments seriously. <laughs>
0: okay. Yeah, I guess, you know, you, you came to it with more of a research background. When I started working on whole, which would have been in like the, the early winter of twenty eleven. I was mm-hmm. I was at a point where, you know, yeah, I have a, I have a doctorate in health studies and I'd done some statistical analysis. But frankly, I couldn't I couldn't parse the argument, say, between Dr. Campbell and someone like Denise Minger of mm-hmm. Raw Food SOS, who said that, you know, she was the one who published this supposed uh, debunking of the China study data set. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I read everything I could and I, and I was at the point when I started working on whole, it was like, well, I like Dr. Campbell more, so I'm going to believe him. And I, and uh-huh. I, and I found that to be a really horrible place to be where I feel like I'm, uh-huh. I'm, I'm doing faith-based nutrition. Uh huh. And so I know you've you um you it. right. That's Pl-
1: interesting. So well, wait, wait. So what happened then? How do you feel now?
0: Well, so I had to. I mean, I had to educate myself, and it was a a long, hard thing. And I'm very aware of the advantages that I have in coming mm-hmm. from a research background, in being well educated at at a couple of you know really high quality university of of being a reader of being surrounded of being able to call up Colin Campbell on the phone and say I don't understand this mm-hmm. can you explain it to me I mean there was a, there was mm-hmm. a chapter in the book that that I I had to work on for like 4 months before I understood the rudiments and you know mm-hmm. and so so I'm very well aware that if I was in that position that most other people are in that position and And the challenge for me was, well, now that I've gone on this journey, is there a way to make the journey easier for other people to become Mm -hmm. responsible consumers? Or do they simply have to take my word for it now and say, hey, I looked at all the evidence and this is what it says?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't. I think that's a very difficult question because people do not have the training or the time to read all the original source material that exists that these headlines in the news are based on. So I think I think it's kind of a mixture. I mean, for one thing, I really try to give people the freedom to be the way they are, and I know that not everyone wants to eat a plant-based diet. They just don't, and so that is fine with me. But I do um, try my best to contribute to a world where the information that we have is based on evidence and not distortions of, of of information. So, I mean, I wrote that article about popcorn because it was so obvious that the message had been exaggerated um, by the time it got to this third source blog from the original abstract that was shared in a scientific conference for the American Chemical Society, and um i think that for for the public maybe it depends on you know i think i think that i think there are some maybe strategies that people can use to like flag things that look a little suspicious and then if they have a few minutes it's worth trying to find links that take them to the original source of the material and even if they don't fully understand it even if they try reading it it might it might jump out at them that this is a little bit more measured, or this is saying something a little different than that original source that they um, that they encountered, like in their news feed or on Facebook. But a lot of times, I think it's really hard because the the scientific evidence often is complex, and it takes more time than people have to really explain it or to really think about what it means and to place it in context. I mean, most people don't have the time to be acquainted with the full context so i think it's really challenging
0: right well so take us through the popcorn study because that was that was really an an entertaining read if if somewhat somewhat horrifying
1: (laughs) i'm glad i'm glad you found it i'm glad you found it to be so there was um a blog from gizmodo that um the headline was scientific proof that popcorn is healthier than fruit and vegetables and um, caught my attention, and I just um, decided to kind of unpack this and see where this came from. So this, this um, article was basically encouraging people to enjoy popcorn and um, saying that it was even more nutritionally dense than fruit or vegetables, and um, basically they were comparing one food to another, popcorn to produce and popcorn came out on top. So they actually, this blog post actually got its information from another blog which is a little bit more scientifically based called Science Daily. And um the Science Daily headline was popcorn the snack with even higher antioxidant levels than fruits and vegetables. So here you can see that there the the information is saying that popcorn actually has more antioxidants than fruit and vegetables. So it's not saying that popcorn's better, just that it has more antioxidants. But um, it's really just one type of antioxidant called polyphenols. and and then if you if you click on the 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 source for this blog article, it's actually the news release from Newswise for this conference for the American Chemical Society. Um, and when you read, so this press release through them has at the bottom of it, the abstract that was presented, which from the researchers, and this is really the original source of the information. And this abstract is saying that research has found that popcorn contains significant amounts of a class of antioxidants known as polyphenols. Being a popular snack food, polyphenols from popcorn are possibly a large portion of the polyphenol dietary intake. (laughs) So... So really, it's not just that um, – it's not that fruits and vegetables don't have polyphenols. It's simply that people eat so much popcorn, this could be a significant source of polyphenols. Um, And so it really took a turn for the worse when it got to, I would say, that second blog um, because it it went from – Highlighting the fact that popcorn contain contains one substance, polyphenols, which is thought to be beneficial. But by the time you read it in the Gizmodo, it's like popcorn is better than fruit and vegetables, which is really not what that abstract was in the first place. So... It didn't take me that long to find this, but it just it just was a matter of clicking on the links. I mean, in these blogs, they all have links to where the information came from. And it actually didn't take that long to get back to the original source. But I I did have to have to look.
0: (laughs) Wow. So that's that's basically saying like um, you get more uh, more literary value from horoscopes than than Shakespeare. Right, because more people read horoscopes.
1: Because so many people, you mean because so many more people read horoscopes than Shakespeare?
0: Yeah, like that was the comparison that ended up turning into popcorn has higher levels of polyphenols.
1: Yeah, that's roughly a pretty good analogy. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. So so
0: in, in your in your journey back to the source, were you able to identify any of the forces that led to the gizmodo article and i'm thinking about like you go to the supermarket and they ring up your your item and the price is is wrong it's either too high or too low and if sometimes it's too mm-hmm. high and sometimes it's too low it's just random error it's you know somebody
1: mm-hmm. typed
0: something in wrong but if it's always too high like that's systematic so did did you find that the, that this sort of error is systematic in one direction or another, or is it just random?
1: Uh, well, it would be hard to say for this particular thread. I'm not sure if there were you know, forces at work trying to promote popcorn that were involved in these blog sites or not. don't know. But I think that this type of error overall in the media is systematic because I think, I think the bias is that journalists are looking for catchy headlines, and they're also looking to shorten and simplify the message. So that's kind of the problem that a lot of times these more complex messages like um, popcorn, it, polyphenols from popcorn are possibly part of a large portion of the polyphenol dietary intake, quote. That phrase would not really make a good headline because it's too long, and you have to stop and think about what it means. So, that, I think that's really that's really the problem, and that's why it's good to be suspicious of headlines and try to figure out where that information came from. Right?
0: Are you familiar with a book by a guy named Ryan Halliday or Holiday called "Trust Me, I'm Lying"?
1: Oh no, it sounds
0: interesting. What's it about? It's about his work as a sort of rogue publicist for really horrible people for, you know, so like hmm. American Apparel and Tucker Max, the guy who wrote, uh, you know, sort of really horrible, misogynistic books and movies. And oh. it was about how he manipulated the blogosphere um, uh-huh. based based on the fact that he, he, he's a very smart guy. And I think he uh, regrets a lot of the things he did. But, you know, he tells it from sort of an insider perspective and he compares it to like the yellow journalism of the early mm-hmm. part of the 20th century, where you know, the, every, you know, everything was sold on the news, it was sold on the street, on the newsstand. So you needed the headline in, because it wasn't a subscription basis. You needed the headline in order mm-hmm. to move papers. He says that's, that exactly is what the blogs are today, that the mm-hmm. economic pressures on them to get eyeballs to attract advertisers. Mm-hmm. And so whatever will mm-hmm. it will attract an eyeball, you'll you know talks about even sort of making stuff up that they can later retract or argue about. So hmm. there's there's, there's like no pre- <laughs> no pretense of you know so the headline the might might be you know um can you know can cow liver um, increase sexual function, you know, or, you know, meanwhile, can cow liver, can cow liver give you a five hour erection? And then the article would be like, well, no, it can't, but they don't care because they've gotten the, the clips in the eyeballs.
1: <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's a problem. I mean, I, that's, I never thought about that, but that's sort of not, I mean, that's consistent with what we, what I know to be kind of the, the challenge of journalism, and especially for print journalism that is losing so much money because so many people are reading things online. Um, I, that's uh, that's really interesting. What is that book called again?
0: Uh, trust Me, I'm Lying.
1: Hmm. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah,
0: it's a very, it's a very depressing, funny, funny book. Very depressing. <laughs> it's, it starts out with him promoting a movie by, um, by buying billboards and then defacing them himself to create news stories. Wow. Huh. <laughs> and, and then sending it, sending photos of the defaced billboards to blogs and, and you know, fomenting a huge argument. So, in fact, you yeah. know, the, the controversy you know, is another thing, as long as people are commenting, that's even better for the for advertisers to see. So yeah, you know, you ever, you ever see those sort of long idiotic threads where people are just calling each other names?
1: Yes, I have seen those, and I never have. Occasionally, I've come across them, but I've never understood how people have the time to participate in that.
0: <laughs> I think I th- I think that there are like professional trolls who get people riled up. Ah. Uh. Um. And then the rest of it just sort of fun. takes over. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, wow. I think both of us have have sort of careers and lives that are maybe more fun than than just, you know, calling people names on uh, on comment threads. But I, I suspect <laughs> I suspect that for some people, that's their, you know, chief form of entertainment. Maybe so. So I want to talk to you about you. You started plantbasedresearch.org. Is that right?
1: Yes, I did. Okay, good. So I got, I got one thing
0: right about your your involvement.
1: <laughs> so
0: tell me what what it is and why you started it and what the purpose is.
1: Oh, thank you. Great. Um, well, I think that again, this was a project that was inspired by my experience working for Dr. Campbell because another um, I feel a common question or a common comment that I heard from the public was that. They were really excited about the idea of research and I feel like Dr. Campbell has done the world such a service in terms of interesting people and um, drawing them to the concept of evidence-based thinking and research. And I think that people overall are really just really excited about it, but I don't know if they know how to access original peer-reviewed research very easily or if they know where to search. And then, you know, like PubMed is maybe somewhat well-known. That's um, the website for the National Library of Medicine Research Database, and that's probably the most obvious place to look for any medical-related nutrition, um, medical or nutrition-related research. But I, So if maybe some people, like professionals and certainly scientists, are very familiar with PubMed. The public, maybe some of them are. But... Um, Even when you do a search in there, there's so much. I mean, there's just, I don't know if there are millions at this point, but there's certainly hundreds of thousands of research articles, and the information is becoming more and more dense really by the week. So even a lot of new research techniques like evidence mapping are emerging, and I think that's somewhat in response to the fact that the volume of evidence is so overwhelming that it's becoming harder and harder to sort through the um, studies that have been published. And a lot of papers are never read again after they're published just because there's so much. So um, I wanted to create this website, plantbasedresearch.org, to really make peer-reviewed research that's relevant to plant-based nutrition accessible for the public and also to inspire um, anyone who is involved in the scientific community or maybe is a clinician and could participate in medical or intervention research in some way to um, draw together the evidence for them of the benefits of a plant-based diet and really just to spread awareness about it. And I don't have, I, you know, I have like some um, nutrition Q&As up there and I'm trying to write more. It's been challenging because I'm also a full-time student right now, but the primary purpose of the website is just to present the information. And I have um the abstracts and then links to the abstract on PubMed, and then when the research article is available for free, I have a link to that free page. And these are all tagged with the topic. And then I also am um, in the process of finishing up tagging them with the study design too. And then, you know, I hope to um, have have some plans to make the search and sort functions a little more refined so people can like narrow down what they want to find. But there are hundreds of articles in here that all kind of point in the same direction. And I think that a lot of people aren't aware of how much evidence there is. Um, but drawing it together like this, I feel like this is really doing people a service. So if they want to get to those um, original papers, they can. And really, that's, that's my goal is to make that more accessible. Right. So one of the
0: things I'm hearing in, in our conversation is I feel like you are a lot less cynical than I am. <laughs> Like, like several times, I sort of tossed you softballs, and you uh, you haven't really swung at them in terms of like taking taking down science, taking down scientists, taking down journalists. Um, <laughs> so, what what do you see that gives you hope and, oh, well, and, and optimism?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, for one thing, I'm a lot younger, so maybe I haven't had enough time to get cynical yet, but. Um, I think, you know, I'm at the beginning of my career, but I think that because I want to be a scientist, I have a lot of faith and trust in myself and my abilities as well as my critical thinking. So I feel like, you know, I am the future of scientific research, along with many other people who I also have a lot of respect and trust and admiration for, including some of my friends, actually, who are other future scientists who are also very plant-based and really interested in doing research on that. Um, I have a great friend at school who is doing her thesis research right now on the waste due to the school milk program. Um, the sorry, the the waste from of milk in the school breakfast program, and it's um, really it's going to be like really great data, and it's definitely going to draw attention to um, the problem of the policy that milk has to be offered to the kids, and then what really what she's measuring is the effect of um, the, the fact that once the milk is brought out of the kitchen out of the refrigeration and it's offered, even if they don't take it, it has to be thrown out. So, and a lot of kids don't take it because they don't like it or they know they're allergic to it or they just choose some other food. Um, so anyway, I have a lot of faith in, you know, scientific research, because I feel like, um, I really trust the process. And I think that it's, people are slow to change their minds, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. And I think, I know that there was a lot of like discussion around the dietary guidelines committee report that came out lately. And a lot of people were maybe like in the plant-based community, a lot of people felt like they were disappointed that there still wasn't more of a recommendation to eat a plant-based diet for health reasons. Although there was a recommendation or a, a statement that it is the most sustainable diet, which a lot of people are very happy about. But, I mean, for that, I feel like, you know, that process for them is almost like following a recipe in a cookbook. They do their evidence review. They look for certain study designs. They're ranked according to the design and certain criteria. And it's really, um, like, based on the volume of evidence for one thing or another that they make these conclusion statements. And certainly they miss things, but I just think that there's not much there's so much in terms of um, in terms of the, the total volume supporting plant-based nutrition. However, compared to the overall total volume of research, there isn't much yet. So, the comparison in how much evidence there is for a totally plant-based diet compared to like the Mediterranean diet diet, um, you know, there's just still a lot to do. And I don't know. I'm going to be one of the people doing it, so I don't. I feel like there's a lot of cause for hope, and and I'm not the only one either. There are other people who are, you know, there are other scientists right now who are very actively doing research on plant-based diets.
0: Right. Well, I'm, I'm I'm happy to hear that. I'm smiling a little bit. <laughs> some some of my own <laughs> darkness has lifted. The, oh, due,
1: that's great. Due to
0: the infusion of of your of your energy and optimism. Um, so one of the things that I like about hearing this is that you're a scientist, but you also come at it from an interest in making it accessible to ordinary people. I think we probably we probably both know scientists who are who are brilliant and are doing important work and mm-hmm. couldn't explain their way out of a paper bag. So like, mm-hmm. what, when when you started working on converting Dr. Campbell's online course to what ultimately became the certificate program, which I, th- I, I don't know how many thousands of people have gone through it, but a mm-hmm. lot. Like Your work has influenced a lot of people and many of those people had no nutritional or scientific or clinical training before they took the certificate program. How did you think about making this subject accessible?
1: Um, well, that's a good question. I think, okay, first of all, I think that my biggest accomplishment in being involved with the foundation and those that course at all was simply to get out of the way and not to sabotage the incredible content that Dr. Campbell had to share. So, I mean, any credit that I could take for my involvement, I feel like I was just wise enough to, not get in the way of what was able to happen almost on its own because the information was so needed and people were so excited to have it. And I think that Dr. Campbell himself is already has that orientation. He has always wanted to return to the public the information that he learned because of his work. <clears throat> and he was very conscious of the fact that taxpayers had paid for really his his entire research budget for his over his career. So he's always had that urge and impulse to return to the public the results from the research that he did. So, um, so that that was I think that was already the foundation that he wanted this to be accessible to um, to everyone. And his course at Cornell, when he taught it, was not necessarily for nutrition majors. So I think that he had kind of distilled the information to the key messages that would be um, understandable for people that even if they didn't have a a biological or nutrition background. Um, And then as far as like our work, like I was one member of a team and we were fortunate enough to, in our, in our renovation of the course material, we worked with um, an education and curriculum developer. And I think that one of the biggest lessons that I took from that whole experience is it's so valuable to work with experts in their own field. (laughs) So the woman that we worked with um, as the curriculum developer was just incredible in her ability to um, kind of distill out the the key messages and really um, create the learning objectives for those and make sure that all the materials supported those learning objectives and that everything really tied together. And I don't think that I – I certainly didn't have the skills or the, the ability to see that the way that she did. So I'm just, I feel like really getting out of the way and working with a great team of, of experts with the skills that you need to create the product is kind of what I would draw as my takeaways. And I, I think that's what I would attribute the success to.
0: Mm. So on, on plantbasedresearch.org, you've got a couple of, of free um, resources The people, I think, just need to give you their, their name and email and they can get one of yeah. them. I have open in front of me is the layman's guide to reading research papers. So, yes. so this is this. I mean, that's a it's not a Gizmodo headline, but it's still a pretty bold claim that, you know, that, that, uh. that ordinary people can actually wade into the world of research. So you can give us a couple of steps, like someone who's listening to this who's like, you know what? I want to go beyond Gizmodo. I don't want to be jerked around by by clickbait headlines what would you tell that person to as a as a start without having to go back to school to, uh, to become yeah. a better informed consumer of health information
1: that's a great question um, and I did want that article on the site because as I said I, I want the site to be useful for the public and so this is an opportunity for people to get some um kind of guidance about how to wade through this information when they're reading it. So um, I think, you know, if you're on plantbasedresearch.org, I've already gathered together a lot of these studies that um, are relevant and, and tagged them in these categories. So I do have that page, Research Articles by Category, which um, you can visit and, and find studies that are tagged in that way. But if you're doing your own search, I would definitely start at PubMed or Google Scholar and, um, depending on what you're interested in, do a keyword search, see what comes up. If you're in PubMed, um, it's possible to filter your results and over on the left, there are a few options for different types of papers. And if you're a layperson and you're not, um, you're wanting to kind of get the big picture or kind of get the overview on a topic, you could click on the review link which is um, it's easier to, to sort of think about what I'm saying if you're looking at it um, or if you have the layman's guide open in front of you. But the idea is you might want to focus on review papers in order to get the big picture because they tend to summarize and be a little bit less technical. On the other hand, not a lot of plant-based um, commentary is in review papers. Although I think Neil Barnard just published a review recently on vegetarian diets for treating diabetes, so there's one out there, but um, you may want to, you know, if you if you just search for the keyword vegan, you get about 400 results right away, and um, I think that just doing some different searches and seeing, seeing what you find, um, you can end up with a lot, but if you do keywords that are very specific, like vegan or vegetarian diet or plant-based, um, you may find things that, are more relevant for for your interest. And then as far as actually reading them, you know, like you can get a lot, you can certainly get the main conclusions out of reading the abstract, which is what comes up in PubMed. And that's what's also published at the beginning of any full paper. And so a lot of them are divided into um, a structured abstract with different sections. So they have the background, objective, the results are separate, and it's very easy to see what their conclusions were. And then there are some like, basic statistical kinds of principles that um are useful to think about and i have some of those described in that document the layman's guide but um i think that overall if you if you read something you don't understand and then you just google it you may be able to um get more information and then get more context for it but i mean i think that actually it's it's worthwhile to just, um, look for some resources on basic statistical interpretation and just to, you know, spend like two hours reading kind of a, a beginner guide to that. Um, and that can really help, um, making the, the results look less like gibberish and more like a statement that you can interpret.
0: Hmm. <laughs> so, so that's, if you're sort of interested in, in like, you know, from scratch, research, mm-hmm. what would you tell someone who, you know, comes across the equivalent of your popcorn study that like say, they mm-hmm. hear something or, or you know, and, and one of the nice, one of the fun things about those studies is that they get, they go viral and they, you know, you'll know you see 12 people on your Facebook feed post the same thing about bacon. And then all the comments from their friends are like, bacon, yay. Mm-hmm. and oh, I'll go out yeah. and get some today. Um what 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 is the protocol for for people to follow those very first steps in in not getting caught up?
1: Um, well, I think what you and I both did is the first step: look for the links in that article that reference the source that the information came from. So, the Gizmodo article um, actually references both Science Daily and the meeting of the American Chemical Society. And I think the first step is to click on those links, read the article there, and see if that matches what you first saw. And it probably doesn't. So then you want to think about how is it different and what's been changed.
0: Hmm. And so what are, what are some of the you have, you have another um, document on the site about study design, um, mm-hmm. I don't think people don't even have to sign up for that. Right. That's just uh, that's, no,
1: just, that's a, just a page that people a, can visit. Yeah,
0: right. So I have the, I have the PDF format here. And so you, you list maybe a dozen or more different kinds, almost two dozen different kinds of, of evidence and the strengths and limitations of, of that. Mm-hmm. And so one, you know, one of the things that I notice is that there's a lot of people out there who have a nutritional chip on their shoulder and they try to prove everything based on a single study. And you mm-hmm. don't you don't think that's a good idea.
1: No, I mean most, um, most. Yeah, no, no scientist would say that that is a good idea because even if a study's perfect and airtight, as you say, it it still really can't stand alone with in the context of conflicting evidence from other studies. So, what's most important is to look at the breadth of the evidence and the weight of the evidence and what is it saying overall, and then to interpret one study in the context of everything else. So did this study either confirm or cast doubt on the results from this other research?
0: So what else is plant-based research up to, aside from from, uh, this really useful function of pulling together information so that people don't have to Become you know s- scholars that they, there's a place where they can go. What what else are you working on? You know you mentioned that uh, you're you're getting uh, a doctorate at, at Tufts in nutrition, and you're going to be one of these researchers. Are you involved in any research on the site right now?
1: I am, and it's not um, directly related to plantbasedresearch.org. That's really my own personal project. That one day I hope to make that into a nonprofit, and um, one day eventually I hope to fund other people's work. But that's probably a long ways off. In the in the short term, um, I'm actually um, we're my the, the nutritional epidemiology department at Tufts is getting ready to um, share a a survey for um, to to start potentially um, some some work to develop a, a cohort. But I'll probably be working with this data set for my thesis work over 12 months. So, we're really looking for anyone that eats any kind of popular diet. Um, could be vegan, paleo, Mediterranean, gluten free, vegetarian, a whole food diet, um, dairy free diet, um, any kind of low carb diet. We're, and, you know, like I, I have my own um, interest in plant based diets, but I'm only one member of this team. And we're all we're kind of interested in all the popular diets and how they compare to a standard American diet. And so, um, we're going to be recruiting for, um, an initial survey over the summer of 2015. And, um, you know, we'd love to eventually later in um, July and August, we'll be recruiting. So we'd love to help, uh, for you to help spread the word and, and really invite everyone that eats any kind of particular diet to be part of this survey.
0: I will, and and if, if so, that person's listening to this, or they know someone. The person who's listening knows someone who eats a particular kind of diet. What mm-hmm. what is the goal of the study? What what scientific ends are we contributing to by by sharing our data?
1: Well, you know, there are so many popular diets that are really taking off that um, seem to people seem to be getting results that are an improvement on what a standard Western diet produces. And um, a lot of these dietary patterns are very little studied in research. So this is the beginning. We're we're doing this um, recruitment survey to um, really demonstrate interest in participating in a study that, um, with substantial portions of the participants following one of these popular diets. So once we have people's responses um, saying they would be interested and they would be available and they would be willing to fill out online questionnaires or, um, you know, for some people who are in the Boston area, if they would be willing to come into the center and be involved in research on site. We're really trying to demonstrate the um, it's a proof of concept so that we'll be able to plan um, future studies, and really draw from this recruitment pool to um, really examine the effects of these different dietary patterns on long-term health outcomes and shorter term biomarkers and um, all other kinds of factors. But I think like the theme is that these dietary patterns are very little studied in the mainstream um, research world. So there's a lot of, like, there are a lot of papers published already on the Western pattern versus the prudent dietary pattern, which um, I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but most researchers are, and it's kind of a description of a dietary pattern that um, sort of follows the dietary guidelines, like doesn't eat too much sugar, doesn't eat too much saturated fat, um, doesn't drink sugar sweetened beverages, um, but you know, doesn't have any, doesn't really have too many particular parameters for it. It's just sort of what research considers a healthy diet. But I really don't know anyone in the United States who, I mean, maybe there are a few people out there, but I don't think like very few people are following what they call a prudent dietary pattern. However, you know, there's tons of excitement about all these different diets. And so we really want to, want to bring some focus onto that into the research world and, and really be able to look at what's going on with those people.
0: That's fascinating to think about the fact that this is like the mainstream diet advice is the one that nobody follows.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think maybe there's, you know, like a lot of people maybe do use the dietary guidelines to promote health. Maybe some educators do or dietitians do. Um, the prudent dietary pattern is not something that people are educated to follow it's just the term that's given for um it's like a very research term i don't think it's used but but that's i think it just highlights the fact that like there's very little work on these other patterns that actually a lot of members of the public are following
0: right well it almost reminds me of like like if you were discussing drinking patterns and it was like you know the not yes. the, the not quite alcoholic <laughs> Right. Like you're, yeah, you know, you're not like you're that. not you're not smashing up cars and beating up your family and blacking out, mm-hmm. but you know, you're you're drinking prudently as opposed to like that's um, hard. Like, like,
1: like <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly the intention that people have when they use that term, but I mean, that's a funny comparison. <laughs> well, just
0: just in terms of like if you're going to go paleo, or you're going to go vegan, or you're going to go plant-based, there's rules. Right there's some mm-hmm. there's exactly. some clarity. Yeah, like the idea maybe, parameters. The, yeah, the idea of prudence
1: define the pattern exactly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, fascinating. So, <laughs> so if, if if folks are interested in in participating in, in one of these studies, in this study of of different dietary patterns to actually get evidence and not just um, you know new media bloviation, where where, where should yeah. they go?
1: Um, well, the um, the title of the study is our abbreviation is ADAPT, which we're very proud of. It stands for adhering to dietary App- patterns. Adhering, sorry, <laughs> adhering to dietary approaches for personal taste. Um, so, really, where our goal is to encompass all dietary patterns, and. Um, I'll I'll share with you a link to our survey, and if you um, are able to share it, then I'm sure maybe you can post a link along with this podcast that so people okay. could access.
0: I will. It'll be um, – so for people who are just listening to this um, outside of the website, it's plantyourself.com, and if you just do a search at the top right for Michaela – m i c a e l a that will take you to this interview and then you could find that that link to find out about participating in a much needed research study
1: Awesome, thank you nowie.
0: Yeah. yeah so any uh final thoughts before we uh, let let people go back to their facebook feeds and their um, their bacon <laughs> bacon and popcorn riddled lives.
1: Oh, well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope it was useful for people. I know that there's a lot of confusing information out there and I guess I just encourage people not to get too tired, to try to make some sense of it themselves and um, always just be cautious when reading these headlines and try to find where the original information came from.
0: Right on. I think that's, that's... That's so important. And you know, if something is too good to be true, sounds too good to be true, um well, with the exception of plant-based <laughs> outcomes, it it probably <laughs> it, it probably is. Um I just sent an email to a guy um who wrote a book that I really uh hated slash enjoyed, um, mm-hmm. called Statistics Done Wrong. And mm-hmm. I hated it because it was it was so so horrifying to see, you know, so this this guy's like twice as cynical as I am about scientific research mm-hmm. and, and the use of statistics. Um, and I invited him on, mm-hmm. the, on the podcast as well. Um, you know, so on the one hand, we have this world in which science is ignored. On the other hand, there's, there's so little scientific evidence for most stuff that we believe, like there's, mm-hmm. there's so much room for curious, ethical people. To make a difference, to real, to really mm-hmm. set things straight, and, and and fill the vacuum that's now currently being filled by, by profit motive. So I am so glad that you're you're on the front lines. That you have friends and colleagues on the front lines, and that you have a hopefully a, a, a long and fruitful career ahead of you. I think mean, we'll, we're we're all we're all going to benefit. Well, oh,
1: thank you, Howie. I I really appreciate all of your work too, and. Um, I think that we're all on the same team and I'm really, I don't know, I feel good about the world, good about the future. I think
0: we're going in a good direction. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going I'm to reach out to you every time I go dark again so I can <laughs> uh, have a little <laughs> infusion of happiness. So uh, Michaela Carlson Aww. of plantbasedresearch.org, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you, Howie. do well. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Michaela Carlson. The action step, obviously, is to go take that survey, the ADAPT survey. Remember, you can find it on the website on plantyourself.com under this interview. And you can also find it at jump with the U replaced with a period j.mp forward slash ADAPT survey. If you're feeling especially generous after you do that, you can go support this podcast by leaving a review on iTunes, by sharing this episode and others on social media and with friends, by getting a Plant Yourself podcast tattoo on the skin region of your choice. Uh, you can also sign up at plantyourself.com for a wellness webinar or for the new report that I just produced, which is called Sometimes Say Never, and it is a look at Well, saying never as a strategy for improving your diet, for transitioning, and actually carrying out in behavioral terms what you feel like you should be doing. So it's that giant knowing-doing gap, and the pros and cons and appropriateness of saying never, never again am I going to do X, never again am I going to eat Y, um, when it works, when it doesn't, and how to use it most effectively. Uh, so the garden update, we're still getting about five pounds of blueberries a day. Um, we've got more tomatoes than we can handle. So if you're, really, if you're listening to this and you're in uh, the Triangle region of North Carolina, come on by. Well, email me first, really, and we can hook you up with some beautiful, ugly organic produce. If you're in the Triangle region, um, there are a bunch of upcoming events. There are a couple of free introductory dinners, which you can find at plantyourself.com slash dinners. And if you just go to plantyourself.com slash events, you can find things that are paid classes, but they are cheaper for plantyourself.com members. Uh, but they're still a great bargain. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, coming up. It's called a, a week of salads to go. And it's based on a concept that I first encountered in Yum Universe by Heather Crosby. Making salads and storing them in such a way that even a week later they're still fresh and crisp and delicious and really easy to take with you on the road. Be sure to tune in next week. I have a very special guest, Zoe Weil, who is quite famous in TED Talk circles, and we have a beautiful discussion that uh, I think will rank in the top 10 in terms of inspiration for how each of us can contribute to a more beautiful world and with that be well my friends